This is Ben Guest, and this is the Benbo Podcast. Today we have Professor David Barry. Professor Barry is a, an economist and a professor of economy at Southern Utah University. And he's written a book that was really transformative in my understanding of the game that informs how I look at the game and how I coach the game. That book is called Wages of Wins, and I can't encourage you enough to purchase it. It, it uses regression analysis and box score data to identify how each of the metrics, the, st the statistics that are recorded in a box score, impact winning. Professor Barry, thank you so much for being here with us today. Your work on the MBA centers around box score data and regression analysis. Can you break regression analysis down for us, please? Uh, oh, I could, I could give that a shot. Uh, let's see here. Um, I, I do remember in, in when I would write for places like uh, the New York Times, they would be very uh, insistent you can't use words like regression and standard deviation. Uh, so let me see if I can explain this, what, what we're doing. What you're trying to do when you're running a regression is you're trying to figure out the correlation uh, between two factors. And the impact one factor has on another for you to isolate that, you have to control for all the other things that might impact what you're trying to explain. So what regression is doing is, is statistically allowing you to isolate um, individual factors. And when I first started thinking about how to measure productivity in basketball, uh, I would look at what people had done. And it was pretty clear they had never really thought about it that way, that they weren't thinking about, you know, if I want to know the value of a rebound in terms of wins, uh, if I want to know the value of a rebound, I'd have to think about it in terms of wins. Uh, you know, how does it affect outcomes? And when you look at what other people did, like Dean Oliver or John Hollinger, it was pretty clear they didn't think of it that way. Uh, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't putting it in terms of outputs. Um, and so regression allows you to do that. Regression allows you to figure out what is the impact one factor has on another. So it's, it's a way of estimating those, those, those parameters. In your research, 94% of production and therefore wins are explained by box score data. What items do you suspect are in the other 6%? Okay, so, so you're, the, the issue is that we're looking at the aggregate season statistics. So it's, it's actually the case that the statistics explain all of the outcomes. But because you're looking at it at the end of the season, and what's happening is um, the regression is treating it as if the season were one big game. And you're explaining the outcome of that giant game with your season statistics, but it's not one game. It's, it's broken up into 82 segments. And because you don't carry your statistics over from segment to segment, there's a 6%, 6% you end up not explaining because essentially those statistics aren't being, you could think of it as those statistics weren't being used. They didn't determine the outcome of anything. Um, so if, if you win a game by 100 to 80, then you scored 19 points you didn't need to score. And then those are lost because you don't carry those to the next night. And now over the season, all of those excess points of you and your opponent tend to even out. Um, and so you explain, you know, it ends up you explain most everything. If you do exactly the same 
approach in a sport like the NFL, where they only play 16 games, the evening out process isn't very good, and you only explain like 84%. Um, Major League Baseball, um, it's it's more seg. It, it's it's there's a longer time period to even things out. But baseball has so many more blowouts because a baseball game could end. You can outscore your opponent like eleven to one. That would be like winning an NBA game one hundred and ten to ten. Um, and so baseball you explained like ninety percent. So it doesn't quite even out quite as well. Uh, bas- the, the best sport for evening out was basketball. Basketball, the basketball stats work amazingly well. It really does a really good job of explaining what's going on. If you could track any additional stats you wanted beyond what's in the box score, what would they be? Well, it, it would be nice uh, because we have part of wins produced is uh, we have statistics that are only tracked for the opponent that we don't track, that we don't bring back to the individual. So we don't know how many field goals made each individual player allowed you would think you could do that that you could just watch the game and assign those things um i've looked at that a little bit and it doesn't seem like that works very well um defense is not play we think of the nba as playing man-to-man defense and so if if that were truly the case then i guess you could do that uh but teams actually don't play Defense is not that simple. Uh, teams play defensive systems, so the entire team plays defense. Uh, and so it's really it's, it's difficult to extract the player uh, from the impact of their teammates. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do in, in doing analysis. You're trying to extract the player from their, their teammates. And so there are certain elements of defense that we can't do that for. Um, it'd be nice if we could do that. I, 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 I don't think that you could ever quite do that because basketball defense is played it's played at the team level it's not played at the individual level um and and another thing about about defense that has to be thought about is i i think people have this idea that there is such a thing as a lockdown defender um and that if you put a lockdown defender on somebody like lebron james that that would have an impact um I think the data is pretty clear that there is no such thing as lockdown defenders on the exceptional offensive players. Um, LeBron James is amazing in almost every game he plays. And every team is trying to play defense against him, and they can't. Uh, there, there just is a huge the, – the, the, the top players cannot actually be stopped. Um, and your only hope is to have top players on your team that can offset them on the other side of the court. Um, and, and also to make sure that when they do miss, that you get the you get the rebound. Um, so, but you can't you can't make LeBron miss. I don't I don't. If that were the case, then LeBron James's productivity would jump all over the place, right? He'd sometimes be great, sometimes not be great, uh, and you don't see that in the data. So, um, I remember there was a playoff series between the Cavaliers and the Warriors where. Uh, Steph Curry had a bad shooting night and the press was talking about how one of the Cavaliers had, had shut him down. And then the next night, Steph Curry scored like 45 points and you're like, what happened to the shutdown guy? Uh, there's no shutdown guy. Some nights, some nights you miss (laughs) that happens. Um, but that's not because of the defense. It's just some nights you miss. (laughs) With your research, Phil Jackson was proven the best coach and the only coach whose players a, got better under him, got more productive under him, and 
retained that productivity even if they left and played for another team. Do you think Phil Jackson's focus on meditation was part of his positive impact? Well, yeah, we you're, there is a study we did uh, where we looked at the impact coaches have. I, I don't know if I, 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 you can't really say we proved anything. I, I, I think the story of that study uh, was that most coaches had no impact. There were a few coaches that did have an impact. Um, so Phil Jackson was one of them. The problem with the methodology is is our approach was fairly simple. We were just looking at when you come to a coach, does your productivity go up? Or in the case of a couple of coaches, went down. And there were some coaches that we saw that. But the problem is we don't we we that approach can't tell you anything about why. Uh, it could be the coach does something. It could be one of their assistant coaches does something. It, it's it's you really can't isolate what the impact was. Uh, my personal thought on coaching is it seems to me the coaches that were most likely to impact performance, uh, at least the two that I focused on that I remember the most is Phil Jackson and Greg Popovich. And I see them both as being similar in how they coach in that during the games, they don't talk very much. And Red Arbach said that in his autobiography um, years ago, that Coaches shouldn't talk during games. Coaches should be quiet. Players already know what they're supposed to do. They're adults. Uh, you don't need to tell them during a game what to do. Uh, you've already coached them in practice. They already know what they're supposed to do. Um, and so, and that's where Red Arbach's victory cigar came out of the fact that he said that I started smoking cigars in games because I was bored. I didn't have anything to do. So I started smoking cigars. And then the fans picked up this idea that I was doing it when we were way ahead and they saw it as a victory cigar. And once that became a thing, then I went out of my way to do it that way. But he said, initially I just did it because I was bored. Uh, Phil Jackson was the same way. Phil Jackson uh, once was asked by the media after a game in which the other team, um, other team went on a long run and he didn't call timeout. And they said, why don't you, why don't you call timeouts when the other team scores 10 points in a row? And Jackson said, well, my players understand that the other team just scored 10 points in a row. They don't need me to tell them that. And it would be better for them to figure out what to do than have me try to tell them what to do. If they figure out how to stop that, then in the future, maybe that doesn't happen. Um, and so Phil Jackson's attitude was, you're not supposed to talk. Uh, there's a famous, uh, there's, that's not famous. There's a video, actually, of Greg Popovich coaching where in the middle of a game, um, he calls Tony Parker over to him. And he yells, you know, he's yelling on this YouTube video. He's yelling, Tony, 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 Tony. And Tony Parker comes over and Greg Popovich says, you're doing great. And Tony Parker looks at him and goes, well, what are you doing? Ah, I'm just sitting here. I got nothing to do. <laughs> and so I think coaching is better if you, if you don't interrupt the players and let them focus on what they're doing. And it seemed to me that the coaches that sort of jumped out in the data were the ones who weren't yelling a lot. But that's, that's purely conjecture. I don't know that that's the, the effect, but it just seems like, in my view, it seems like you would be better as a coach if you just stopped talking. I, I don't think there's a lot of benefit in doing that. In 2006, Allen Iverson was traded for Andre Miller after about 30 games. And it's one of the rare, perfect experiments that's run in the NBA where it's a player-for-player -player swap. It's mid-season, so you can compare their impact on their former team and their impact on their new team. And your formula, WP48, which is found in your book, Wages of Wins, which I highly recommend, and 
John Hollinger's formula, PER, for ESPN, which is still used by ESPN, made the two of you made wildly different predictions after this trade, the day this trade happened. And Hollinger predicted that the Denver Nuggets were now a championship contender with Allen Iverson and Carmelo Anthony. And you said the Nuggets are going to tread water. They're going to remain about where they are, which was a 500 team. And the Sixers are going to improve dramatically with the addition of Andre Miller. And you even predicted the Sixers' final record. So this trade happens mid-season. At the end of the season, both of your predictions were right. Hollinger's prediction was wrong. The Nuggets tread water and lost in the first round. And your prediction of the Sixers' final record with Andre Miller was correct to the game. Yeah, well, there's an element of luck in that. Because <laughs> I, was, I was predicting before when the trade happened, I had to predict minutes played. And I, of course, wouldn't have known that. So I was guessing on the minutes. Uh, if you don't get the minutes right, then you wouldn't get the prediction right. Uh, and also, it's it, although players are consistent in the NBA, more consistent than they are in other sports, they're not perfectly consistent. I mean, there can be variation in performance. Um, and so there's an element of luck involved in that. I, I, I thought it was – I didn't notice that it was coming out exactly right until it did. So I was, I was somewhat surprised it came out exactly on target. Um, so I thought – I thought it was somewhat humorous that it worked out that way. Um, I was not surprised that that I had the general idea of the trade right, that it was the case the Nuggets came out ahead. They were um, – it was the case Sixers came out ahead on that because Andre Miller was a better player than Allen Iverson. So I did fully expect the Sixers to get significantly better, and they did. Um, and I did not expect that Allen Iverson and Carmelo Anthony were going to be championship contenders, and they were not. And so one of the things that was interesting about Allen Iverson's career is that when the book came out and then Malcolm Gladwell wrote about it, there was a lot of pushback that we were wrong. And then Allen Iverson proceeded to spend the next three or four years after that proving our point. Um, because everywhere he left, they got better. Um, and everywhere he got to, they didn't get better. Um, in fact, when he went to the Pistons, they got substantially worse. Uh, the Sixers got better after he left. Uh, and it ended up, his career ended, I think, quite a bit earlier than people expected because he was out of the NBA when he was, what, 32, 33 years old? His career ended a lot more abruptly than I think people thought because he wasn't hurt at the end. Uh, it just reached a point where teams were took the position that giving a guy 25 shots a game when he only shoots 40% seems like a bad idea. And Iverson didn't know how to play any other way. Um, and so in the end, he sort of proved our point. What was interesting is that NBA observers never picked up on the lesson because we keep doing this same story over and over again. Uh, Donovan Mitchell's the latest, uh, latest example of this. Uh, Carmelo Anthony, I think a lot of people in the media have never changed their view of Carmelo Anthony, even though he's a very similar player. Um, so there's not a lot of there's not a lot of learning of the lesson going on. So there's that. So that, that and and from an economic perspective, I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting that people don't learn because um, economists historically thought they did, but I think learning is a lot more difficult than people think it is. It's really hard to let go of of what you believe. Uh, that's a really difficult thing to do. Are you surprised by that? I am. I'm much more of a heretic when it comes to economics. So 
I never fully believed the whole rationality story because I actually have met people before. I get the feeling a lot of economists don't actually know any people. Um, so I grew up with people who had beliefs that didn't make a whole lot of sense and they never abandoned any of them. Uh, and so I never, I never thought that that was something that would be surprising that people would not abandon their beliefs. Uh, people, beliefs are, beliefs define us as people. I mean, that's the way to think about it. It, it defines who you are. What questions interest you these days outside of the world of the MBA and your formula, WP48? So much of my research now involves um, looking at gender issues in sports. I think that's that I started working on about four or five years ago. Uh, and to me, that's that's a really fascinating uh, topic and a very important topic. I think when it comes to um, I, I think the, the big issue, the big lesson that, that, that I think, um, we've learned in economics, and I think most people may not be totally aware of this, but, um, the idea of persistent economic growth, that societies change, that technology changes, that's very recent in human history. That only started happening two or three centuries ago. Uh, prior to that, uh, history is essentially a flat line. There's very little change in people's standard of living for much of human history. And the argument, and uh, Darren Asimoglu and James Robinson and MIT make this argument, I think this is fairly uh, persuasive, is that as societies become more inclusive, um, they are more likely to have um, more technological change and more economic growth. And to me, if you follow that argument through, the fact that we don't have very gender, that we have a substantial amount of gender inequality uh, is, is, a, is a significant problem around the world. And we are, we are essentially, think about this in a sports context, we are leaving a lot of talented players on the bench uh, because we're not giving them the opportunity to play. Uh, and so in talking about gender inequality in sports, I, th I think it helps raise awareness of that issue. So that's something that I work on quite a bit. Is that and, and it is the case that measuring productivity um, in basketball and other sports helps one tell those stories. Uh, for instance, I published a paper recently showing that um, in coaching, uh, men and women do not have a different impact on player performance. It's not the case that men are better coaches, even though the labor market clearly prefers men as coaches over women. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any evidence men actually are better at coaching than women. Uh, and I think that's an important story to tell. So that would be, that would be the, the, the big question I'm working on now. Have you done research into the impact of coaches in the WNBA? Uh, yes, I have done research on the effectiveness, just, but in, in the general sense of looking at men and women. So we, we did, that was the study that we did was we looked at uh, do men or women, are they better coaches in the, in the WNBA? We have another paper that we haven't quite published yet uh, looking at, at who is likely to be fired as a coach in the WNBA. And that research indicates that white male coaches are less likely to be fired for equivalent performance than uh, black men, black women, or white women. Um, so there's a bias in the hiring process in in coaching and and you can see this just by looking at the numbers 80 percent of nba coaches uh, are white males same thing is true in the nfl uh, we tend to hire white males as coaches and that's primarily because 
white males tend to be the ones who own the teams, and so they're the ones hiring the coaches. So that's why you see that bias. If you had a billion dollars and unlimited time for your research, what experiments would you run? Well, one of the cool things about doing sports research is I don't need a billion dollars and and I don't have to run experiments because the experiments are being run for me. Uh, so that's this is one of the the cool things about about sports research is um, they are constantly running these experiments for you. Uh, I, I think that's I've spent my life looking at sports data, uh, and I think that's that's what's so cool about this is that they they keep running experiments every single day on this that you can check and see what's going on. Um, and so, so that's, that's, what's neat is that you can just sit here and just, you can look at what they're doing and, and analyze all sorts of different areas of human behavior. So I've spent my life looking at, at how people make decisions, um, how human beings make decisions and sports is simply sort of the canvas I use to tell the stories. Uh, but ultimately the story is about how people make decisions, how they evaluate the world around them. So that's what we're looking at. Teaching is knowledge transfer. You're a professor. What are one or two of your best practices? When it comes to teaching, uh, so I there's, it seems like professors tend to have a preference. They either like research or they like teaching, and I I look forward to doing both of those things. Uh, teaching is storytelling. Uh, so teaching is simply when I write articles and I write books, I'm telling stories. That's me writing the stories. Uh, when I teach, I am verbally telling the stories. Um, often when I'm teaching, I'm telling a story that I wrote. Um, and so I think in, I think the objective in teaching is to try to get the information that is in your head into the person's head. And to me, the way to do that is, um, A, you have to be willing to repeat yourself. I think a lot of professors have difficulty with that. They have this attitude is, I already explained that. Why don't you know that? That's not how learning works. If you explain something and they don't understand it, then explain it again. That's how it works. So repetition is important. I also, when it comes to teaching, I'm a very big believer, and, and this comes right out of the world of sports. You want to get someone to know how to do something, you practice. You want someone to learn something, you, you got to give them frequent tests. Uh, I, I, I give quizzes every week, two or three, two quizzes a week. Um, uh, in my classes, it's it's important that they have an incentive to study on a regular basis and think about the material on a regular basis. I'm not a person who thinks that what you should do is give two or three exams over the course of a 15 week semester and expect them to to do something with that. Um, human beings just don't learn like that. You wouldn't you wouldn't expect you wouldn't want to watch a basketball team that practiced three times. I mean, you got it. You got to spend some time thinking about what you're doing. Um, and so that's, you know, so when it comes to teaching, I think, you know, repetition, constant practicing, and, and I would also add, it is really terrifically important when you're teaching, you've got to try to be interesting. You know, you got to pay attention to your audience. You got to think about whether they're with you or not. If you're looking out at your audience and they're not listening to you, you got to change what you're doing. Tell a story, do something. Don't just stand there and keep droning on and on. That's pointless. You know, it's a performance. Uh, you got to treat it like a performance. When you write, do you first outline? What does your planning process look like? Oh, oh, process of writing. Okay, so uh, yes, yeah, so when you write, uh, you do start off with uh, an outline. Uh, I I treat writing, and this is um, I treat writing very much. This is how I imagine uh, making a movie is, and I've never made a movie, but I've I've 
I've listened to directors explain the process, and, and it sounds to me similar to what I think I'm doing when I'm writing. So you start with an outline with a vision of what you think the project is going to be. Um, and then you start filling in the outline. You start painting the scenes that tell your story. And you realize as you go through the process, um, at times certain scenes that you thought were going to work uh, don't really quite work like you thought, so you get rid of those. And then there's other cases where you're like, you know what, uh, I need something here in the middle here that's not, this, these two things don't seem like they're connecting. So I got to connect these two stories together in some way, so I need another scene. And so that's kind of how the process works, is you have an outline, you have a vision when you start, and then as you write, things occur to you and you see things and then you fill those in as you go along and say, wait a minute, I think that would work better if I connect this story to that story. Um, and and I, I, I think this is what I notice when I read uh, someone like Malcolm Gladwell is he takes things that don't look like they connect and he tries to connect them. Um, that's sort of what he does in his writing. And I think that's a lot of what I try to do as well, is you try and connect things and show how, you know, this idea over here is similar to that idea over here. So I've, I've actually, I've, I've, I've written a book for my history class that I teach. I teach an economic history class. Um, and um, it's, a, it's a pretty large, um, ambitious project detailing the history of economic history of the United States and relating it back to medieval England and a bunch of other things. Uh, and, and, and a lot of that is, is doing just that. It's connecting stories in history. And I, and I connect them up to stories from sports, stories from movies. Um, I reference 260 different songs in the book. Uh, so it's, it's a way of saying, you know, here's a story about history. Let me show you how that connects to this. This musician wrote this song, and this, this is talking about the very same thing that's happening at this point in history. Or this movie, if you remember in this movie, you saw this. Well, that is similar to this over here. Um, and I think that's what you're doing when you're writing. You're trying, to, you're trying to get the information into the person's head by connecting it to things they already know. Um, and I think that's kind, of, that's kind of the writing process. So this book you're working on, what are some of the findings? Well, these aren't findings. Um, it, it, the book is, I, I teach a first year economic history class. It's a rather unusual class. I don't think it's taught outside of Utah. Uh, what it is, is a general education class. Uh, it typically has uh, 50 to 100 students in it. Uh, it the class, ha it's economic history, but it doesn't have any economic majors or history majors in it. It's every other major on campus. And these are all first year students. So I had to figure out a way to teach the material in a way that the students could relate to. Um, and, and the basic theme of the class is that America has developed because of specific institutions uh, and because America has become more inclusive as time goes by. So it's a story of American inclusiveness and American institutions. And a lot of these institutions go back um, to the uh, colonial experience, the fact that these people had um, emigrated from from England and so they were English and they knew English history and so they were so the founding fathers are adapting ideas they the founding fathers don't create they didn't create institutions they they adopted institutions that had already been established in England um, so like for instance the Bill of Rights is essentially exactly the same as the Declaration of Rights which was written in England a century earlier um, and so 
you know, and if you think about, you know, the story of the Magna Carta and how that's impacted um, American uh, politics and, and law. So it's, it's really a matter of, of, in the book, going back historically and telling the story, you know, how does the Magna Carta come about? Um, and, and a lot of these stories in English history, uh, given that we have several centuries of, of looking back, um, there is the famous saying that, that um, comedy is tragedy plus time. Uh, a lot of these stories were tragedies at the time, or certainly not funny at the time, but in retrospect, they're now hilarious because the things that people did, you're like, wow, that's, that was crazy. Why did you do it that way? Uh, and so, so the story of the Magna Carta is a good example of that. Um, King John had a lot of issues as a person. Um, and so it, the story of the Magna Carta is, it's essentially accidental. Um, they, they wrote out a, a 63, uh, 62, 63 uh, statement charter. Um, and it was just a laundry list of things they liked. Um, and along the way, they just mentioned human rights. And it actually was Clause 39 and 40 of the entire document. So that means they said 38 things before they got to the one thing we remember for them saying. And what that tells you is when they wrote it, they didn't care about that. Um, they actually talk about fish before they get to human rights. Um, and so it's, it, to me, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's, that kind of a story, I think, is one where you could bore students to death by telling them the story of the Magna Carta and human rights and reading the document. But, you know, if you tell the story as, you know, and you, and you connect King John to Robin Hood, which you, which you can, um, and you think about Robin Hood and you think about men in tights and you think about um, just the, the, and then you think about the silliness of all the things in the Magna Carta that, you know, there, there's actually one clause in the Magna Carta where they specify uh, the kinsmen of this particular person can no longer be in power. And it, it, they're very specific about who this person is. And you're like, you know, that's awfully specific. <laughs> you know, Gerard can't be involved anymore. It's okay, no more Gerard. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that stuff is, is you know, I, I think it's entertaining and it's funny. And I think the students enjoy hearing about it. Um, so that, that's kind of, the book is all designed to be like that. It's, it's, it's not going to be published for a while. Uh, it'll take probably a, a year or so for that to come out. Um, but, um, but it, 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 it was certainly fun to write. One of the things about the pandemic is I, 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 I spent most of my days writing this book out. So it was kind of fun. That's our interview with Professor David Berry. I encourage you to buy his book, Wages of Wins. And you can find him on Twitter at Wages of Wins. This is Ben Guest, and you can find my work at benbo.substack.com. That's benbo.substack.com. Have a great day.